Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome, Love in Action Nation and the world to episode 29. So let me ask you a question. Do you want to be a boss people love while also driving high performance? See, building morale and high performance are all about engagement. And engagement is all about learning. In over 20 years of research, investing, consulting, and coaching, my guest today, Whitney Johnson, has found that the key to engagement is continuous learning and fresh new challenges for people to engage. In her book, Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve, Whitney shows us how to reduce turnover and enhance loyalty by leading your team members on their current learning curve and designing their jobs to maximize learning and engagement. See, people today want opportunities to learn and experiment and grow in their jobs. That's just the way of the land now. And the best bosses know this and they know how to make it happen. So Whitney joins us today to tell us exactly how to do that. So who is Whitney Johnson? She is a CEO advisor, a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, and the author of another book you may be familiar with, and that is the critically acclaimed Disrupt Yourself which was released back in 2015. Whitney is an award-winning Wall Street analyst, and she co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Clayton Christensen. She's a frequent keynote speaker on disruption and has been recognized as one of the world's most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50 and Fortune Magazine. She also hosts her own podcast, the weekly Disrupt Yourself podcast. Whitney Johnson, I'm honored. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Marcel, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Good. So, and I'm glad that you're here too. I'm delighted by that. So we start with a gratitude moment. What makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? That is such a great question. And I was, I don't know what makes me smile every day, but I can tell you what made me smile this morning. So we have two children, a son who's in college and then a daughter who just graduated from high school last year and she's taking a gap year before she goes to the University of Virginia. And so I wake up and I see that our daughter is sleeping on the floor at kind of the foot of our bed. And I'm like, so what happened? Like, could you not sleep? Why are you sleeping here? And she said, no, I, I'm working on this project, on this writing project, and I was so happy at all the good ideas that I had that I just wanted to come in here and sleep near you all because I just love you and I'm happy. And that just <laughs> made me smile. Ah, nothing like a daughter's love for her mother and the environment she made that she was maybe grew up in and it's, that she's coming home. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Winnie, I want to start by kind of giving our listeners a little bit of what you're about. So I also ask this, give us an idea of the kind of the work that you do. What's, what is your why? 
I love that question. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I know I'll go oftentimes when I'm going in and, and we're potentially working with a new client, they'll say, what do you do? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But I do find that until they know what your why is, they don't necessarily want to work with you. They need to understand what your why is. And, you know, shout out to Simon Sinek for really right. popularizing that idea. So my why is, is that high growth organizations need high growth individuals. So that's like the pain point for those organizations. But the why for me is that in order for us to be high growth, that's hard. It's hard for us to be, most of us are high growth, but we want to be higher growth. And that's a really hard thing to do. And it's in fact, quite scary to do because it Hmm. basically means that we're disrupting the current version of ourselves, you know, who we are today to, to be who we can be. And so my why is, is to be able to provide content, be able to provide ideas, be able to provide through my own actions. So I love your podcast title, Love in Action, through my own actions to make it a little bit less scary to change, a little bit less scary to grow. Because I do know from the neurosciences that when we're learning, when we're growing, when we're developing, we get dopamine hits that make us happy. And that's what we all want is to be happy. And so my why is, I know that if you are growing, if you're developing, you will be happy. And I want to make it a little bit less scary to do that thing that you absolutely deep, deep in your heart want to do. Love it. I love that. So this is really interesting to me is that your background involves, or at least you have this early love of music. And I guess you've studied music. So I want to touch on that a little bit, but music has influenced the way you work now. How so? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I actually studied music all growing up. I played piano and I majored in music in college. Then I disrupted myself because I went to work on Wall Street and I never pursued music professionally um, other than, you know, accompanying people here and there and then paying me to do that. And so then the question has become, you know, well, if you did, you spent all your life doing that thing. Well, how does it inform and how does it influence what you do today? there are two ways it influences. One is that because of all of that musical training, there's a sense that when I'm creating a speech or writing a book, I always look for that musicality to it. And also sort of the beginning, the middle, the end, that's like ingrained in me. And so I look for that structure, whether it's a book or a speech. Another piece I think that has really especially influenced me is one of the things I was very, very good at is accompanying vocalists or other um, musicians. And so they would, there's sort of this call and response, there's this fluidity when you're a really good accompanist that you're able to anticipate what they're going to sing, when they're going to take a breath, et cetera. And so it taught me this ability to listen really well and to respond to and to interact and, and to create that music together with another person. And I think that's really influenced and informed my ability, not only to speak, but to, to coach and to have really deep, heartfelt conversations with people, which is absolutely something that we need to be able to do when we're consulting, advising, and, and helping someone grow and develop. So those are two ways that the music has really influenced my current work that I do. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. That's actually even fascinating for a non-musician like myself. <laughs> so okay. I want to start by skimming the surface on the on the book, Build an A-Team. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, you got to that point where you realized I need to write this book, but what inspired you exactly? I mean, why did you write it? <laughs> Yeah. So here's what happened. I wrote the book, Disrupt Yourself, and that was published in 2015. And we're actually now republishing it with Harvard Business Press in November of 2019. So super excited with a new introduction. But here's what happened. 
write the book. Um, I've been inspired by, I've co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, done all this work and thought, you know what, disruption, it's not just about products and services, it's, a, it's actually about people. And that mm. this framework can help us understand people, that this silly little thing that takes over the world is also us, you and I, like we start as a freshman in, in high school and then we become a senior and then we disrupt ourselves and become a freshman in college. And we do that with our first job and our second job. So it's something that we do over and over again. The big difference though with personal disruption is that you're both the disruptor and the incumbent because you're always disrupting you. But I've written this book, super excited, applying the framework of disruption to the individual. And then it gets published and the Boston Globe says this. They say, this may very well be the what color is your parachute for the entrepreneurial generation. So part of me is like, yes, this is fantastic. And the other part of me is like death now for any corporation because no one's going to want to talk to me because they're all going to be like, if they read this book, they're all going to leave. I don't want my high performers to read it. And for me, I was like, no, completely misses the point. Well, not entirely like career changers can use it. But the bigger idea for me was, is if as an organization, you will allow your people to grow if you will make it possible for them to disrupt themselves, if you will make it possible for them to learn and leap and repeat over and over again, they are going to help your organization be a high growth organization. If you let them disrupt themselves, you as an organization will not get disrupted. And so that book came from, Build an A-Team came from me wanting to say, here's how you use this framework. What does it look like? in a corporate environment in order for you to be a high growth organization. So that was the need. That was the question that I wanted to, to be able to answer. It's almost like in a way, the book Disrupt Yourself disrupted itself enough to expand into the people side of disrupting, if that makes sense. That's funny. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, because you said disruption is about people. And that really stuck to me when, you, when I heard that. So let's lay out the framework for the book. Yeah. And so you talk about this S curve of learning, which is really the framework for high employee engagement. And you say every one of us has an S curve. And at some point along this curve is where employees are the happiest, learning quickly and highly engaged. Unpack that for us. Yeah, absolutely. So here's what happened. So first big insight I had was this framework of disruption. It's not just about products, it's about people. The second big insight that I had when I was working with Clayton and we were investing and you know looking for disruptive companies was that this S-curve that we were using, it was popularized by E.M. Rogers in 1962, this S-curve, and it looks kind of like this. So for those of you who are watching, it looks like this, or actually I'll draw it like that. We used it to gauge how quickly an innovation would be adopted. So at the base of the S, growth is slow until a tipping point is reached or the knee of the curve and you move into hypergrowth, and that's where your growth accelerates. And then you reach the top or saturation, and growth tapers off. Mm -hmm. So this next big insight I had was, huh, I think this S-curve can help us understand people, how we learn, how we grow, how we develop. And so what that would mean then is that every time you start something new, you start a new job, you start a new role, you start a new project, you're at the bottom of that S. And so yeah. what do you know? You know that even though you're growing really fast because the exponential growth is not yet obvious, a lot of time is going to pass and it looks like nothing is happening. That helps you avoid discouragement if it's you. And if you're the boss, you're like, oh, they're supposed to be slow right now. Okay, 
I can be patient. Um, so it's sort of overwhelmed for you, the employee, and for the boss, you now know they just need support. They need encouragement in order to now get into that sweet spot, that area where it's hypergrowth. And the, it's exact opposite now because in a little time, a lot happens. And this is the area where your employee is really exhilarated. This is a steep part of the curve. And what that means they need from you is focus because you're going to throw a lot at them. You've got to help them focus. And also focus and see them because they're doing something a good job it's super easy to ignore them and be like they're doing great i'll leave them be but that's when you get at risk because they're like they don't appreciate me and they start looking at leaving and then you get to the top of the s curve that is characterized by all right i figured stuff out notice how the growth is slowing again a lot of time passing not much happening that's because you're no longer enjoying the feel-good effects of learning you're not getting that dopamine you start to get bored so you as the employee you're starting to feel underwhelmed what do you need from your boss you need challenge and so that's what it looks like it's this idea of you learn and then you leap and you repeat and what the s curve does is it helps you understand the emotional journey that you as the employer are having and then as the manager you now have a language and framework to operate in as a leader and know exactly what you need to do for your people in order for them to build momentum regardless of where they are on the s curve yeah, that's great. Okay, so expanding even further, you got these, what you call seven accelerants of learning, right? So basically, it's seven ways managers can support their employees to to really just speed up that learning along the curve. So can you touch on what those seven accelerants of learning are? Absolutely. All right, so I'm going to go through them all reasonably quickly, and then, yeah. Marcel, if you want to drill down let me know so the Mm -hmm. very first one so you're at the bottom of that s curve and it's take the right kinds of risks so there are different kinds of risks people can take on they can take on competitive risk and they can take on market risk so competitive risk is big opportunity um big job you just have to figure out if you can compete and win because there's obviously going to be a lot of competition market risk looks like you don't know if there's a market you don't know if there's an opportunity but if there is there's no competition Well, what does that look like for you as a manager and helping your people move up the learning curve quickly? It can be most characterized by this idea of amateurs compete and professionals create. So when you hire someone, the way you can do this very practically is you hire someone brand new on your team. Sometimes if things are moving really quickly and you're a high growth organization, you'll find that over time, there's someone you already in your employee whose job description has kind of morphed to take on those jobs that you think you're hiring that new person to do. And so then you hire that new person and they're like trying to do that job. And the old person's like, well, but this is my job now. And so now you've created the situation where you've got competitive risk. I saw that happen in a company where we were advising turf wars ensued. Someone, you know, there was a winner and there, and there was a loser, the incumbent won, the new person lost, but you know, bloody blood battle guts, for no purpose at all. So the way you can do that really practically is when you hire someone new, make sure that you've scoped out a place for them to play where no one else is playing because then they can create and when people are able to create, they move up the learning curve much more Mm. quickly. So that's number one. Number two is distinctive strengths. What you do well that other people do not. The challenge here is you can pretty quickly figure out what your people's superpowers are 
they may not actually know what they are. And even if they do know what they are, they may be reluctant to use them because it's so easy for them. It's so reflexive for them. It's not actually valuable. So one of the jobs that you can do in order to help your people move up that S curve quickly is once you identify their superpower, persuade them that, that that is valuable and then give them stretch assignments, push them, but make sure that whatever you're doing to push them up that curve, they are leveraging their strengths and not just doing something else that they think is valuable because it's hard for them. Mm. So that's number two. I can tell you a story or keep going. Let's keep going. It might jump in the story in a minute, but yeah, okay, let's, let's do this. Okay. So number three is embrace constraints. So here you are, you're playing where no one else is playing. You're playing to your strengths. Now you're like, okay, if only I had enough time, enough money, enough buy-in, enough expertise, then I could move into the sweet spot of my, my S-curve of learning, which is precisely what your people actually do not need. What we know from physics is that people need friction. They need something to push against. And so for your people to really grow and develop, you want to impose thoughtful constraints. You actually want to give them stretch assignments. Now they're doing great. You want to leave them be, like I said, but what you want to do is make sure you keep pushing them, you keep stretching them. And in fact, if you don't stretch them, then their confidence starts to erode. And so in order to continue to move up that curve, look for what their strengths are, but then be thoughtful in giving them challenges, giving them stretch assignments so they continue to accelerate um, up that S curve. Mm. Number four, battle entitlement. So here you are, you're now in hyper growth. Everything is going really well. And there are two kinds of entitlement here. Number one is um, for your employee, they start saying, this is the way things will and should always be. I'm doing great. I deserve more, or you should let me have more, as opposed to figuring out, well, what can I do differently and how can I even be better? The entitlement on this side too, I think is really important for you as a manager is to remember that sometimes it kicks in where you've got a person and maybe they're not in the sweet spot, but they're at the high end you like where they are because it's a sweet spot for you. Entitlement kicks in when we're not willing to let them jump to a new S-curve when they're ready. So we've got to help our people check their entitlement, but also as managers, check our own entitlement. Number five, step back in order to grow. So it's like this idea of you crouch before you jump and you bring a fist back to punch. Stepping back can look like a lot of different things, but it might be you give them time to reflect you give them an opportunity to go get training. You give them um, an opportunity to go to school. You make sure that they take a day or two off a week so that they can rejuvenate and their, their bodies and their minds can refresh. So stepping back in order to grow will really increase their productivity over the long haul. And for you as a manager, it might mean you let them jump to a new S-curve, but that also step back can be a slingshot, not only for them, but for you as a manager, as a team, as an organization. Mm. Two more. Give failure its due. This is something, if someone is moving up an S-curve quickly, they are going to make mistakes. And the up and the down are part of personal disruption. The way that you can help your people here are two things. Number one, when they make a mistake and you want them to make a mistake. In fact, every time they do make a mistake, you then say, okay, so what's the ROI here? What's the return on investment or the Roth, the return on failure? Because we learned something if we're willing to look at it. 
And then also understand, and I love this from Price Pritchett, he said, the movement's always where the pain is. And so when something hasn't worked, this is an opportunity for them to learn even more. And so really ask them to tease that out. And one of the things that I say to my people is when I'm giving you feedback, when you've made a mistake and we're saying, what can you do better? How can we improve the process? What I'm really saying is, I'm investing in you. And so let them know at that point, this is your opportunity to double down on them as a person and on their value to the organization, because then they'll continue to move up that curve and jettison any potential shame that can creep in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Number seven, be driven by discovery. This goes back to this idea of strengths. So you can take these accelerants in sequence, but they can also come out of sequence. One of the things that's going to happen when you hire people, because they don't value their strengths, they are frequently going to put on their resume what they do well, not what they do best. And so when you hire people, be open to the fact that when you first bring them on, they've got lots of, they're brimming with potential, but they might not actually be on the right S-curve for them. And so be open to the fact that after a few months, you'll be like, okay, super talented, but I think there's a better S-curve for you. And so be open to this idea that you might need to move them around because once you identify their superpowers, which they may not be aware of or were not willing to identify, you'll say, there's a better role for you. There's a better spot. So that's the seven accelerants for moving up that curve quickly. I'll repeat them really quickly. Yeah. Take the right risks, play yeah. to your distinctive strengths, embrace your constraints or impose thoughtful constraints if you're the manager, battle entitlement, yours and those of your employee, step back to grow, which again applies to both of you, give failure its due. Failure is a constraint. It's a tool of creation if you will let it be. And at the top of your S-curve and at the bottom of the S-curve, be driven by discovery. So that's the framework of personal disruption that allows you to accelerate and move up a curve quickly so that you can learn, you can leap and repeat very, very quickly. And the faster you can do that, the higher growth individual you become. So it's interesting because you may have to employ different management strategies along the S-curve. So when yes. someone is at the top and stagnating, what do you do as a manager at that point? Great question. So that's sort of the $10,000 question, well, $100,000 question at this point, $10,000 question 30 years ago. So when you've got a person who's at the top of the S curve, one of the things for you to really think about and how you frame it with them, because there's a piece of you that's sort of frustrated because um, you're like, oh, what do I do? <laughs> I need them to engage is to have that conversation and say, here's the S curve. Here's what it looks like. Here's what we know from the neuroscience. Once you get to that top of that S curve, you're not learning like you were. What that then means for you and for our team and for the organization is that you've got this latent innovative capacity. So we've got a couple of options. One of the options is we can have you jump to a brand new S curve and sometimes that's gonna make sense. And let's look at that, let's explore that. But if we don't wanna do that for whatever reason, there are three things that we can do. Number one is we can find a way for you to jump in place. Jump in place meaning maybe get a coach. We know that from a domain expertise perspective, yeah, you're at the top of the curve. But as a leader, there are always ways, um, as a contributor, there are always ways for us to grow and develop. And maybe you're not in the top of the curve there because none of us ever are. That's one of the ways you can always take on market risk is getting better as a contributor because it's a total green field. So yeah. what does that look like? How can we help you develop either on the domain side well, probably not on domain side, but from a leadership perspective. The second thing you can do is have them become a master to the apprentice. 
you think about the fact that you've got all these people who are on the launch point of the curve or in the sweet spot, they need someone who can act as a stabilizer so that that innovation can happen. And the ability to teach and to train is a whole different curve. And so that's an opportunity for them as well. And the third thing you can do is stretch them. And let me give you a very simple example, but I think it doesn't need to be big stretch. It can be very targeted stretch. Mm. Last year, I was over in India speaking at SAP and had a conversation with a fellow named Sumit Shetty. And he's a mid-level manager, engineer by training. He's just inherited a team. They're all at the top of the curve. They don't want to jump and he can't make them jump, but he can make them stretch. So here's what he does. They have to prepare this presentation for senior management. Uh, They have this way of doing it and they've always done it one way. And so he says, you know what? We're going to do it differently. We're going to practice and practice and practice and practice some more. And they complained. Oh, they complained. But the presentation went really well. They discovered some things about themselves that they didn't know. They liked the response that they got. So at the end of the year, when they did their performance, you know, review of what went well for them that year, this was a highlight. And so there are ways that you, when you've got people at the top of that S curve who are stagnating and for whatever reason can't jump, there are things that you can do to stretch them that pushes them back down into the sweet spot for a little bit longer. What we've seen from our research is you're typically going to get to a top of an S curve after three or four years. And sometimes for whatever reason, you can't jump to a new S curve, like if you're the CEO, um, for example, but you can help people stretch, become a master to the apprentice, get in a coach, or just do self-study of, I'm going to learn more about my industry than I know today. And so there's this mindfulness as well about making sure that you yourself push back into this sweet spot of that S curve. So those are three things you can do in order to prevent stagnation when people are at the top of that S curve. But eventually, you're probably going to need to let them jump. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I've been schooled on the S curve of learning. That's great. Let me talk about something that we we like to discuss here in the podcast with our guests, and that's uh, the concept of fear and love. So I'll start with this. How does fear-based management styles affect this learning curve? Yeah, I think it does in a lot of ways. Um, So a fear-based management style says there's not enough. There's just not enough. There's not enough for me Hmm. as a manager. And so what that means then is that when I have people on an S curve and they're really in the sweet spot, I might start to feel threatened by them because if they're really good, that means that they could end up taking my role in some form or fashion. I get pushed off my S curve. So that's one way that it plays out. Another way that it plays out is that when I do have a really strong performer and they're ready, it's time. We need them to jump to a new S curve, not only because they need to, but because there's someone else on our team that needs to have an opportunity to step up. And because the organization needs them to do that, we don't want to let them jump because we're afraid that if we let them jump, somehow, some way, that is going to hurt my prospects in the future because I've got the superstar and if they go away, what will it mean for me? So those are two different ways that it can play out for you from a fear. The fear starts to manifest. Now, this may be a a personal perspective on your part, or perhaps you have done some research on it as well, but why do you think fear is still so prevalent in how businesses are management when the evidence is so clear that the principles of care trust, belonging leads to high performance? You know, Marcel, it's such a good question. And I have have a very nascent hypothesis, and then I'll talk a bit 
more about that. Um, So not too long ago, I had on my podcast, a woman by the name of Celia Harkwell, and she talked about feminism, a new idea in business. And feminism, meaning this idea of care and trust and command and control being masculinism, if that's a word, it's not, but we're going to just pretend like it is. Let's do it. So I do think that part of what's happened, and she asserts this, and there's something about it that makes sense to me, is that when you've got organizations whose structure, whose business models are built on command and control, it's not quite so easy for us to just say, well, we're going to start to trust and we're going to start to create the sense of belonging because the structure itself does not allow for it. And so I think that that's something for us to consider. And while it can start to introduce itself in certain pockets inside of an organization and over time, those organizations can refashion or reimagine. One of the places I think you can start to see it happen in a more organic way is in new businesses, you know, as new entrepreneurial ventures start. I can think of right now, we're working with a company called Weave, and it's a high growth company in in Silicon Slopes, which is Salt Lake City, Utah. It's called Silicon Slopes because they've got great skiing there. And one of the things that they've done is they're making it possible for every single employee to have a coach. Like we've structured this program for every employee to have a coach, which is very much that nurturing, we want to develop you sort of perspective. Um, But it's a fairly new company. They've got 500 employees. So I think the quick answer to your question is our structures are such that Command and control is what is required for the business models as they exist today. It's only over time, I think, that it's really going to shift. Though in the meantime, I think oftentimes we as individuals will say, well, can you just talk to my boss and tell my boss everything you just said? And I think we really, really underestimate how much control we ourselves have to effect change within the sphere of influence that we have. And so it always starts with us. And there are things that we can do with the people that we manage, simple things like, okay, where are my people on their S-curve? How can I help them build momentum along that S-curve? I don't need management approval to do that. But what that means is when I do that, I'm going to have people saying, I really like working for you because what Mm -hmm. I know is when I work for you, you give me an opportunity to learn. And that's how you become, as you said at the very beginning, a boss that people want to work for, a boss that people love. Yeah, yeah. Winnie, what would be the most important advice from your book to a CEO? Mm, I kind of just gave it, but I'll reiterate. I think the sure. most important advice would be or is that we are all learning machines. We want to not know how to do something. We want to figure it out, get into the sweet spot. We want to get at the high end. And then when we do, we want to be able to jump to the launch point and start all over again. Like that is what we want. We are driven to grow. We're driven to develop. And so I think the thing that motivates beyond money, even beyond praise is that opportunity to learn. And so as a CEO, if you can recognize it, every single person in your organization is on an S-curve of learning, including you, and then manage them so that they can build momentum regardless of what they are. Because I do believe that there is actually no such thing as a high potential. Let me say it differently. When you find the right S-curve for each individual and you manage them accordingly, everyone, in my opinion, is a high potential. So that would be my greatest advice is understand that where people are on their S-curve, manage them accordingly. And when you do, you will find that everyone is a high performer. So quoting you by saying that disruption is about people, before you attempt to disrupt others, you have to disrupt yourself first. 
Amen, Marcel. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Okay. So we bring it home with two questions, Whitney. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart? And maybe you've already stated it, but maybe there's something else that you want to really dig down and kind of just air out that you'd like our listeners to know. Yeah. You know, there are two things that I'm thinking about right now. One is, so there's some people in our, our lives right now, someone who works for us who is had family, mother passed away, family had lots of health issues, and some other friends where there have been children have, have taken their lives. And I think one thing that's really tugging at me is this idea of when you have, be generous, when you have an impulse to do something kind, whether it's to give someone time, give someone an encouraging word, give someone a smile, give someone money, when you have that impulse, act on it. Hmm. We have so many generous impulses every single day, and we act on very few of them. And that is something that's very much on my mind. And I want to encourage, you know, don't suppress a generous impulse. I say this to my children, when you have this thought, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, I don't care, do it anyway, don't suppress it. So that's one thing. And then the second thing kind of builds on this is this idea of that there is so much possibility for every single one of us. And so often, and I do this, and I'm working on this, is that we limit we limit, we limit, we limit. And we can recreate who we want to be. Um, as I said earlier, amateurs compete, professionals create. You and we are all professionals at living our lives if we're willing to create the lives that we want and, and become those high growth individuals. So that's what's on my mind right now. Mm, I love it. Thanks for sharing that. Beautifully stated. So you get to end the episode your way with one final statement. Is there one thing or one takeaway you'd like our listeners to absolutely walk away with? Yeah, I would say, number one, figure out where you are on your S-curve of learning, number one. And then number two, based on what you heard today, you had some idea, you had some insight, right now, this very second, act on it. The book is called Build an 18, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve by Whitney Johnson. It's been a pleasure and honor. If people want to get connected with you, where do they go? I think the best place, Marcel, because this is a podcast, is to go listen to our podcast, Disrupt Yourself. <laughs> you can find us at WhitneyJohnson.com. Um, one podcast episode I would actually refer you all to is episode 120, where I talk about playing to your distinctive strengths. It's a solo episode. It's about 25 minutes. But I just go over this idea of how do you play to your strengths, lots and lots of different angles. So I think that's probably the best place for people to connect. I've already had a couple of episodes myself and prepping for this episode, and I'm already hooked. So absolutely, people go there. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Oh, Marcel, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. So here's what's on my mind after that great chat with Whitney. You know, she said toward the beginning, high growth organizations need high growth individuals. Yes. And even though, you know, she gets a bit scientific with her S-shaped learning curve, but let's simplify this thing, okay? To engage your employees means they have to consistently learn on the job. That's how they're going to grow. And so we as leaders, we need to know how to manage each of the phases of that learning curve she talks about, hopefully to get to that sweet spot, right? That steep part of the curve where employees are learning quickly and they're super engaged and 
probably going home to tell their wives how awesome their job is. So I think the best description, manager your employee, can best be summed up by Whitney in her book. She said this, and I quote, managing people so they can disrupt themselves honors the biology of change that is our human nature and keeps talented people engaged. Yeah, love that. Thanks for joining us, Love and Action Nation. Please do us a favor. If you liked this episode, write us a review on Apple Podcasts and kindly give us a positive rating. You see, this podcast can only go places if you help us move it forward. And I'm proud to say we're now in 17 countries around the world, and we want to continue expanding the Love and Action message across borders. Next week, I sit down and chat with Jacqueline Carter, co-author of The Mind of a Leader. On behalf of my wonderful production team at One Stone Creative, I'll see you next time. And don't forget, love in action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. Give it a try. Hey, Love in Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.